This is a series that we're in, built together. It's about the local church. And so we established in week one that the local church is a group of believers who are becoming like Christ. And now it's going to get into the nuts and bolts of, of, of what God does within his church. And so it's important that as believers in Jesus Christ that we walk in unity. That we walk in unity. But I want you to know that unity is not easy. Why is unity not easy? Because we're different. Because we're people, right? Because we're people. I remember sometimes my wife, whenever we, 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 we don't have arguments. We call them intense moments of fellowship. Intense <laughs> moments of fellowship. And when we have an intense moment of, of fellowship, uh, an IMF, when, when we have an IMF, um, uh, she'll sometimes tell me, she'll say this phrase, she'll say, Ben, you, you do know that I have a brain, right? You do know that I actually think. Because sometimes whenever you're disagreeing with somebody, you can forget that they actually have an opinion. And that their opinion is just as valid as your opinion. And this is what makes unity difficult in marriage. This is what makes unity difficult in your relationships with your family and your friends and your co-workers. It's the reality that we are all people that are flawed people, that are imperfect, that have different opinions and ideas about how things should work and function. And so you take that into the local church, you get a group of people that gathers and there are lots of opinions and ideas about what songs should be sung and, and how loud should the volume be and, 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 and what should the greeters up front be doing and, and what should the pastor be preaching and what should happen here or there and everywhere. And so you have all these opinions and ideas and then people start sharing their opinions and ideas and they have no problem letting you know and so then you start having there just can be disunity and discord amongst the body of Christ and so the apostle Paul here we get into these verses he's going to begin to unpack what are the ingredients for unity and it's not just unity within the local church so this is what we're talking about these ingredients these are four main ingredients we're going to look at that that will build unity this can work in every area of your life in your marriage, with your kids, on your job, with your enemies, people that don't like you and people that you don't like, these ingredients here that Apostle Paul is going to bring out can help in every area and specifically in our church and and what God is doing here and the unity he's trying to build here. So let's look at the text, Ephesians 4, and we'll start back in verse 1 since we only covered one verse last week and we'll read these six verses and then we're going to look at the four ingredients that build unity. Amen? I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. With all humility. First ingredient. With all humility and gentleness. With patience. Bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So if you can see, I have there, the the point is here, verse 3, that we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit. That word eager is very similar to the word urge. Paul, Paul was urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called and, and, and you can put the text back up there. And so it's the same type of language that we should be eager with that same amount of energy that Paul was urging us to, to live in a way that honors God with our life. That we should be eager to maintain 
the unity of the Spirit. And at the end of this message, we're going to talk about what we need to be unified on and what, where we need to come together on. But he brings out the ingredients here. With all humility, gentleness, patience, and love. Four main ingredients that will build unity. And so if you think about those four ingredients here, humility, gentleness, patience, and love, you know, there really is only one person that perfectly exemplified all four of those. And what's his name? His name is Jesus. And so that's how we're going to frame every single point. We're going to look at all four of these. We're going to frame all of them, and we're going to look at them through the lens of Jesus Christ and how he exemplified all four of those ingredients. This is what we're going to look at. Point one, first ingredient is Christ-like humility. Christ-like humility. Humility is a virtue or a characteristic that is hard to come by today. Would you believe that? Or do you believe that? It's hard to come by today. We live in a time where humility is not seen as a virtue, but rather it's seen as a weakness. To be somebody who's humble is seen as a weakness. We are encouraged encouraged to celebrate our strengths. Celebrate your strengths. Celebrate your power and your ability Celebrate those things. We're encouraged to talk to people about our strengths, to point to ourselves as the source of all the good that we accomplish. That's, that's, what, that's what we're encouraged to do in this culture in America and around the world. We, it's, humility is hard to come by. Have you ever seen the athletes that compete in the sports that we watch? You know, some of them, some of them have been taught good lessons by their parents, but some of them didn't have parents to teach them good lessons. And so whenever they score a touchdown, or whenever they hit a home run, or whenever they, when, whenever they swing that golf club and, and that ball stops a foot from the cup, you know, or whatever sport they're playing, they forget. They forget that they are standing on the shoulders of somebody else. Every success that you and I have comes at 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 the expense of, or I should say better, it comes on the shoulders of someone else. You didn't get here by yourself. Even if you feel like, well, I had nobody. I didn't have a good mom or a good dad. I didn't have grandparents that were there. I was all alone. You are still standing on the shoulders of someone. You have somebody's DNA. That DNA that you have, those, 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 those giftings and those skills, that intellect that you have, even if you had nobody to train you, that is inherited DNA from somebody else. It was not yours. It didn't originate with you. And so that, that but, but that is the culture we live in where people, when they succeed or they have success, they want everyone to look at them. And they want to talk about their success and what they accomplished. You know, but the reality is, is that that is absolutely not true. Yes, they may have been the one who hit the home run or, or threw the touchdown pass or caught the touchdown pass. But it really was not, they are really not the source of that success. It is somebody else, and ultimately it is God. God is the one who gifts us and calls us. And so humility is a virtue and a characteristic that has to be learned. It has to be developed. It has to be a conscious decision that we make to choose to deflect the glory, to, to, to deflect the praise, to acknowledge God as the source of good in our lives. And, you know, this culture that we live in, that... that that seeks to praise man and exalt man. It was just like that in Paul's day. Actually, this word humility was not in the dictionaries of Paul's day, in the Greek or in the Latin. They didn't even have that word. The word humility is, is, is a Christian word. 
Christianity developed that word. Jesus developed that word. And Paul was the first one to speak about that word when we look at it here. He, Christianity is the foundation of humility. Isn't that amazing? That that word humility was not even in the dictionaries of Paul's day. It is a strictly Christian word. The word humility has its foundation in Christianity because Christianity is founded by Jesus. So I would say this, that humility, that humility, as far as the ingredients go, is the most foundational Christian virtue. It's to be humble. It's to be humble because it, it reflects Christ. So how did Christ, how did Jesus, if we're looking, if we want to have Christ-like humility in our life as individuals and in our family, with our friends and our coworkers and in our church, how did Christ demonstrate this virtue of humility? Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Says this, the Apostle Paul again in Philippians, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Says here, says that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So some people take this verse right here, this section right here, and they say, you see, the Apostle Paul says that Jesus emptied himself of his deity. And they, they get that scripture mixed up. Jesus never emptied himself of his deity. He was fully God and fully man at all times. But what did he empty himself of? I got a, a three main things that I, I wanted to tell you that he emptied himself of when he came, when God came in flesh to the earth. First, he emptied himself. He let go of his privilege of heavenly glory. Heavenly glory. John seventeen five says this, and now, this is Jesus praying, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So when Jesus came and he humbled himself, he gave up heavenly glory to come to an earth that was stained by sin. Cursed by sin and rebellion to imperfect human beings. He came and he had the privilege and the right to live in heavenly glory. To be with his heavenly father. But he, he emptied himself of that privilege and said, I'm coming and I'm going to come down and be among men and women that are flawed and imperfect. Secondly, another thing that he gave up his privilege for or his right were his divine prerogatives, his divine prerogatives. Matthew 26, 39 says this, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus was God. He could have done anything he wanted while he was on the earth, but he was in submission to whose will? To the will of the Father. And you see that over and over again in the Gospels when Jesus would talk. He would tell his disciples and those that were with him, I only do the things I I see my Father do or say the things I hear my Father say. He gave up his rights and privileges of, of his deity to submit, to humble himself and to submit to the will of the Father. And then the third thing I want to bring out here, the, the privilege and the right that he, he gave up was a favorable relationship with the Father. Matthew 27, 46 says this, And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. This is whenever he's on the cross. 
He's about to give up, willingly give up his spirit and die for sinful humanity. And he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He humbled himself. Listen, listen. He humbled himself for the purpose of taking upon himself the wrath of God that was due us. He gave up the privilege of a right relationship with the Father and the submission to his authority. He gave up that right relationship so that he could absorb the wrath that we deserved. This is humility. Jesus demonstrated the essence of humility to come to serve. He could have made everyone do anything he told them to do. Because he was God in the flesh. He could have come and ruled like the rulers of his day. But he said, he said in the book of John that he didn't come to lord over people. But he came not to be served but to serve. Jesus demonstrates humility for us. So if we're going to be humble. And we're going to walk in humility in our relationships. In our marriage with our kids. And with each other as a church. We're going to have to look at Jesus. We're going to have to look at that model. We're going to have to pray, Lord, help me to be like Christ. Help me to walk in that humility. The Lord is calling us to walk in Christ-like humility. Humility is a laying down of our rights. It's a laying down of our rights. Humility is a laying down of our right to be right. Isn't that hard sometimes? When you know you're right, how, how many of you know you're right a lot? I, try, I don't want to say that about myself because you, you might feel like I can't be your pastor, but sometimes I might struggle with that from time to time. I know I'm right. We gotta, being humble means you lay down your right to be right. Sometimes you're right, but you still don't get your way. Sometimes you're right and you have to let something go. And there's times, look, we, we must always stand for truth and never compromise the truth. But there's times in relationships that if, that if you will hold on to your right to be right, you will ruin a relationship. You have to give up being humble, being like Christ. Having Christ-like humility means that you let go of your right to be right. You let go of your right to be right. Humility is the foundational ingredient that's necessary for unity in our lives. We lay down our right to be right. It's a laying down of our desires and plans. James 4, 6 says this, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Anybody ever wanna, does anybody want to be opposed by God? Would you, like, would you like to sign up for opposition from God this morning? We can get a sign-up list right now, and we'll sign you up. I'll give you a surefire way to be opposed by God. Just be prideful. Be arrogant. Think you know it all. Think you've got it all figured out, and you have all the answers. Surefire way to be opposed by God. But if you don't want to be opposed by God, Scripture tells us that God gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to be humble? It means that you're completely dependent. You're completely dependent. You're not self-reliant. You say, God, I am completely submitted to you. I take all of my ideas and my dreams and my thoughts and everything I thought was right. And true. God, I submit to you, to your will, to your way. I want to obey you and your word. I'm submitted to you. And that type of person God gives grace to and strength to. He gives grace to the humble. 
Do you remember that, that section of scripture that I read in Philippians earlier about the mind that, that the Apostle Paul was saying we need to have? You go in the first verses of chapter 2 in Philippians, it says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my, my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You want discord in your life? Do things from selfish ambition and conceit. But if you want unity, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Did a wedding yesterday for... Elliot and Shadowlin, Elliot and Max. Elliot and Shadowlin, Max now. And so I'm looking at Elliot and I'm giving Elliot his instructions about what his responsibilities are. Ephesians 5, and it talks there at the end of his instructions. It says that, that you should love your wife and cherish her and nourish her. It says that you should love her as much as you love yourself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. And you know that, that that's true? And l- listen to what it says here. It says... It says that we should look not only, to our, not, not, not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That's the key ingredient to, to a happy marriage right there. You're looking for unity in your marriage? This is the key ingredient. In humility, count your spouse more significant than yourself. If you will live a life of counting your spouse more significant than yourself... Counting your coworkers, your boss, your friends, your enemies. You count people more significant than yourselves and you put their needs above yourself. That is, the, that is the pathway to unity and peace in relationships. Warren Wearsby, theologian and Bible commentary uh, writer, <laughs> says this about humility. It says, humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you have lost it. Humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. Humility means putting Christ first, others second, and self last. That's humility. This is the bedrock of unity in our lives and in our church. It's humility, Christ-like humility. Let's look at the next ingredient. Moving on, the second ingredient is Christ-like gentleness. Christ-like gentleness. Gentleness, or it can be translated meekness. Gentleness or meekness is a direct result of of humility. Have you ever seen a, a humble hothead? <laughs> really? Like, think about that. It's an oxymoron. You can say, I'm a really humble person, but you're always flying off the handle. I don't think you understand what humility is. If you believe that you're humble and you're just always saying things you shouldn't say, responding to people in ways you shouldn't respond, humility, if you're a humble, Christ-like, humble person, you're going to be gentle and you're going to be meek. Jesus said this in Matthew 11, uh, 29 through 30, it says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you remember the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 53? He said there was nothing about Jesus that was, that was desirable to look at. He came, he was gentle, he was lowly. He, wasn't, he, didn't have, he didn't play the part of a great leader and ruler. He didn't come with this great authoritarian thing. I'm going to come in and take over with power. And that confused his disciples because they looked at his power for miracles and they thought, 
This is our ticket. We finally find our ticket to freedom with this man. But he came and he was unassuming. And he was gentle and he was lowly and he was humble. Humility produces gentleness and meekness. So here's the idea. When you translate this word gentle, gentleness or gentle or, or, or meekness, the idea is this, is that it is power under control. Power under control. And, and we see a picture of this with wild animals being tamed. So you get a horse, a wild horse. You've seen a wild horse. You better not go near a wild horse, right? You can get kicked in your teeth if you go near a wild horse. But wild horses must be broken. But if a wild horse is broken by his master, that horse still has all the power that it had before it was broken. But now that power is under control. That power is submitted to a greater authority, right? And that's the picture of gentleness or meekness. You know, have you ever been to the, to the, um, to, 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 to the circus, to a circus, and you see these, these lion tamers? I think they're so crazy. Who would ever get in a circle cage with a lion? But they do it. And sometimes, sometimes there's been bad things that have happened to lion tamers who they thought they had broken those lions, but those lions proved to them that I'm not broken. <laughs> I'm going to do what I want to do when I'm hungry or when I'm angry. But, but, but from time to time, they tame those lions. But is that lion still as powerful as it ever would be? Yes. Flip a switch, that lion will eat your head off, rip you to shreds, because it's a lion and you're a human. Makes you, makes you think how powerful God's power was at work in David's life, right? Killed a lion, grabbed the lion by the beard. That's pretty powerful. That's a, that's a powerful man right there with God's strength in him. But that's the picture. It's power under control. Gentleness is power under, under the control of God. A gentle and meek person is, is a quiet, soothing, and mild-mannered. They're never avenging, self-assertive, vindictive, or self-defensive. Jesus demonstrated this. Listen to this. Jesus demonstrated this gentleness when the soldiers came to arrest him. But Peter, what did Peter demonstrate when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? He wasn't humble yet. He didn't understand humility or gentleness yet. Peter, Peter demonstrated the typical response that we would have. He's going to take my sword out. I'm going to fight these guys. I'm going to, and I'm going to cut somebody's head off. And he went to swung. He swung his sword to cut off the head of Malchus. And, and Malchus was quick and dodged his head like that. And chopped his ear off, right? But what did Jesus do here? Matthew 26, 50 through 53. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. This is speaking to Judas. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? The power, it was power under control, power that was submitted to the will of the Father. The greater purpose that Jesus was there for was to die for your sins. And he could have got out of it. He could have called 12 legions of angels. He could have spoken to those soldiers and with a breath they would have all disappeared. But he was humble. He was humbly submitted to the will of the Father. And because of that he was gentle and he was meek. He was mild. He said, put away your sword. Quit trying to fight your own battles. Quit trying to fight your own battles. Jesus had access to infinite power, which he could have used at any time to defend himself. But instead, 
he demonstrated power under the authority of his father. Power under control. Amen? That's what we want. We want humility that leads to gentleness. And that builds unity. The Lord is calling us to walk in Christ-like gentleness and self-control. To be careful. I want to I key in on this. To be careful with our words. A humble person who submitted to God's authority, who is gentle and mild and meek, they're careful with their words. I want you to know something, brothers and sisters. Our words are powerful. Our words are powerful. Sometimes I think we forget that our words can hurt as much as they do. Sometimes I think we forget that even in joking, sometimes we can really wound people. So I just want to caution you out there. Sometimes with, as, with friends, we can get so personal and close with each other that we can, we can make side comments to each other, make fun of, 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 of each other in ways that maybe we feel like we shouldn't, we don't want to say something because we, we don't want to make it awkward, but it really hurt us. Be careful with our words. Proverbs 15.1 says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle person doesn't speak harshly. A gentle person, the pattern of their life is that of, of soft, gentle words. You know, there really is never a reason to speak harshly to somebody else. Some of you think, well, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Maybe there is. Yeah. And somebody sins against maybe your family and they're taking advantage of your family and there's situations where you might want to speak truth in a way that communicates clearly. But generally speaking, there's no reason that we should ever speak harshly to one another. There's no reason. I think sometimes we think if we speak harshly that we're going to get our point across quicker. If we speak harshly, if we speak strongly, that, that it's going to really get the job done. But that's, that's not true. That's not true. James 1 says this, shows us that that's not true. 19 through 21, know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Amen? Humility leads to gentleness and meekness. We need a congregation of humble and gentle and meek people. Third ingredient that builds unity is Christ-like patience. We have humility Gentleness and now patience, patience, Christ-like patience. The Greek word means long-tempered or long-suffering. Second Peter three eight and nine says this, but do not overlook this one fact. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is what patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Jesus demonstrated this type of patience when he walked the earth. He demonstrated this patience. He came to the nation of Israel. He was born a Jew, born of the Jews, and he came to the nation of Israel. And the religious leaders repeatedly rejected him. Even in spite of all of the miracles, they rejected him. They rejected him. They rejected him over and over and over again. But he was patient with them, and he wanted them to believe to see him for who he is, and to submit to his authority and his lordship. He was patient. And that patience is demonstrated in Matthew 23, 37 and 38. It says this. This is Jesus crying out. He's looking over the city of Jerusalem. And he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He's saying, he's saying, you, you kill people that come to you to speak truth. He's speaking of himself. He's prophesying here, you're, you're, you're about to kill me. I've come to speak truth to you, but you are killing me, stoning me. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? He's saying there, I wanted to. I was patient with you. And I I waited and I waited and I waited and I called and I did miracles in your sight because I wanted you to see who I am. And some of you, that's you here this morning. God's been trying to get your attention and he is patient with you. He's waiting on you. And some of you are on the outside looking in. Don't neglect the patience of God and the mercy of God in your life. Respond, listen to what Jesus says and hear through your situation. How often God has longed to gather you together to himself. He's waiting, he's longing, he wants to bring you to himself. But listen here, Jesus tells him, but you were not willing. Don't willfully reject the Lord. Don't willfully reject his mercy. Because there will be a time when mercy is done. There will be a time when mercy will be no more and there will be no more opportunity for mercy and forgiveness. That day is coming. But while there is time, while you have an opportunity, take advantage of the patience of the Lord. We can learn to walk in patience when we remember how patient the Lord's been with us. Think back. Stop for a moment. Think back to the patience the Lord has had with you over the years. Think, think for a moment. Think just, I don't, want you, I don't want you to rehearse all kind of bad memories. But think about, think about the stupid decisions you've made. Like I, as I was writing, as I put that in my notes, the phrase, think back to the patience the Lord's had with you. I mean, I've made some dumb decisions in my life. And I think, Lord, you were so patient with me. I was so naive and ignorant. But the Lord is so patient with us. Think about the sinful decisions you've made. The foolish choices or the unwise words. How patient the Lord Jesus has been with us over and over again. And this is the patience that we want to have in our life with others. You know, why is it that we get impatient sometimes? Why is it that we get impatient? Because I think sometimes we forget that God's trustworthy. I know that's, that's, that's one of my struggles So often, impatience is really a lack of trust in the Lord. We must learn to rest in God's sovereign plan. Sometimes I get impatient because I'm looking at a situation. I'm thinking, this needs to happen, and I know the answer, and I know the next step, but it's not there yet, and it's not time yet, and I can get impatient, and my impatience can lead to frustration, and my frustration can lead to, to me not being meek and humble, and I can bring hurt in relationships. I think that's the pattern, is that we forget that God is trustworthy. That we can trust him and that that we can be patient and we can wait on the timing of the Lord. We can wait on the timing of the Lord. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Amen? We We can be patient. We can trust. We can be patient and trust the Lord. And we can be patient with others. Because the Lord's been patient with us. Amen? Christ-like patience. Christ-like humility, gentleness, and patience. And then lastly, this last ingredient that builds unity in our lives and in our church is Christ-like love. Christ-like love. Jesus demonstrated his love by laying down his life for us. 
John 3, 16 and 17 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Everyone stops right there, but verse 17 is so good. Listen, listen. For God, the Father, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus come? To save the world. God could have, hear me, God could have sent his Son to condemn and judge the world. He could have sent him to do that. But what did he send them to do? To save the world. There will be a time when God will send his son to condemn the world. And we read about it in the book of Revelation. There will be a time when Jesus will come on a white horse with eyes flaming like fire, with a tongue that's like a a two-edged sword, with feet as burnished bronze. And he's coming to judge the world, judge those who have rejected him. The judgment is coming. But when Jesus was sent from the Father... The first time, he didn't come to condemn the world, but he came to be a savior. For God so loved the world, he sent his son to save. That's agape love. That's God's kind of love. Romans 5, 6 through 8 says this. For a while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps, maybe, for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God demonstrated his agape love, his love, Christ-like love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen? Amen. While you were in rebellion against God, wanted nothing to do with God, he died for you. God's love is defined as agape love. Agape love gives continuously and unconditionally. God's agape love gives continuously and unconditionally. Agape love is unqualified and unselfish love. Love that willingly gives whether it receives in return or not. Did you catch that? Agape love, God's kind of love, the love that we want to have functioning in our life, it is unqualified and unselfish love. Love that willingly gives whether it receives in return or not. Agape love goes out to our enemies. Agape love goes out to our enemies and it prays for its persecutors. That's agape love. Matthew 5 says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. With what kind of love? How can you love your enemies? It's got to be agape love. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of the Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, that's not agape love. What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Agape love loves those who don't love you. That's God's love. Think about that type of love in a family, in a marriage, with your children, in a church. That kind of love is going to build unity. Agape love. Agape love. 1 Corinthians 13 speaks of this love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned but have not love, I 
gain nothing. Listen to this. This is so good. It's read at weddings all the time. It's good this morning. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It's humble. It's gentle. It's meek. It's mild. It's patient. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Some of you need that type of love in your life, right? We all do. We all need that type of love. But in some, some, some situations we face, we get ourselves into, we need somebody to love us like that, that will love us through, that will bear all things, will believe all things, will hope all things, will endure all things. How many of you have experienced that love in your life from somebody else, from a, from a person that you could touch? You, you, you experienced that? They believed in you. They loved you, were patient, patient with you, were humble and gentle with you. In any circumstance that you were in. That's the love that we need. And this is the type of love that builds a church. This is, these are the virtues and the attributes that build a church. Humility, gentleness, patience, and love. This is what we need in our lives. And I want to tell you, as, as the pastor of Living Word Church, God has called me to shepherd you, to teach God's word to you. And I believe that as God's word is taught, his church will be built And that as this church is built and as the church is equipped to the teaching of God's word, that these attributes will will be developed in us. We will walk in humility. And we will walk in gentleness and patience and love. God will develop those things in us. And I see a vision of a church that 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 have all that has all these ingredients at play in our church. And we build each other up in love. And the church grows and is strengthened and we are equipped and we are sent out to do what God's called us to do. Amen? Do you see that vision? I see that vision. I see that vision. Amen. I got a couple people clapping for me. They see that vision. You don't need to see the vision. That's fine. I'm going to keep preaching the vision. And God's going to do his work. I want to illustrate for you what it looks like. Because we're going to talk about I illustrated last week, so I might as well do it again, right? You guys are going to expect it every message now, but we're going to illustrate how four ingredients produce something beautiful. Unity. We're talking about unity, right? All right, here we go. So, I got some ingredients here. So, doesn't that look beautiful to you? They asked me what type of cake mix I wanted. I said, I want chocolate and chocolate because that is the best type of cake. All you people who don't like chocolate, I'm sorry for you. So there's four ingredients, right? I had to, I I couldn't actually make a homemade cake because you need more than, (laughs) you need more than four ingredients. But I've got four ingredients. I got the cake box mix. I got the water. I got the oil and three eggs, three eggs, three eggs. So let me get my scissors here. Let me, I I didn't have scissors before this, before it service. I was like, I better have scissors because I'm going to try to open this and it's going to bust everywhere because I've done that before at my house. So here's what it's like, right? We, you, you use, it takes all the ingredients, but you know, separately, really not much to it, right? It's good. It's got some substance and we need to develop all of them in us, but you put them all together, that's when it starts getting powerful. Put some water in here. Y'all doing okay? All right. 
Those, those who were sleeping, they're awake now. They're like, what's about to happen? This is for all the visual learners out there. This is for you guys. See, every time you bake a cake, every time you, every time you look at Play-Doh from last week, every time you're playing with Play-Doh and your kid mixes it all together, you're going to think, do not be conformed to the world. Every time you bake a cake, you're going to be thinking um, about unity, about humility, gentleness, patience, and love. So far, no shells. That's pretty good. I should have had an apron on, huh? Yeah. And I, I wasn't going to do a blender, but we just, you really need a blender. So the idea is, you know, you had a nice little handheld blender there, and, and you put all those ingredients together, you mix them all together, and then you pour it. Well, you've you got to grease your pan first. Or you, or you can use wax paper. We've been using wax paper to layer. That, that works really good, too. So you put that in there. You put it in the oven, and you put it at... 350 degrees, and you bake it for 30 to 35 minutes. Well, no, we would do two rounds. Well, yeah, 30 to 35 minutes. If it was an 8-inch round, two 9-inch two rounds is 25 to 30. So, but you stir it all together. Get it all, I mean, get all those ingredients together. You bake them, and this is the good part right here. This is what, this is what happens Voila, coming out the oven right there. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? This is, this is unity. Before, it was all separate. But you put that together, you put gentleness, hum, uh, uh, you put humility, gentleness, patience, and love together, and you get a beautiful chocolate on chocolate cake that I am taking home and eating. <laughs> so after service, do not come up and try to get my cake. But, but, but. This is really, a, this is what I wanted you to see. This is a picture. This is, when, when we come together with those virtues and those attributes, it produces something beautiful. It produces something that, that is desirable. That's very desirable if you can eat that, right? I believe it will be well. I believe it will taste very well. So, but what are we trying to unify around? We have all these ingredients, these four ingredients that's meant to build unity in the church. But what do we unify around? Unity is a generic term. Right? Well, we need to be unified. Everyone wants to talk about unity. Well, unity around what? The rest of the verse tells us. Let's go back to the text. Ephesians 4, 2 through 6. Let's look at those. These are the ingredients that build unity with all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So what do we unify on and around? Truth. Truth. Let's put the text back up there. We unify around the reality that there is one body. We are one body. We are many members, but one body. There's one church, a church of believers, one body, one spirit, the Holy Spirit sent from the Lord. We have one hope. It is an eternal hope that one day when we die, we just don't return to dust, and that's it. We will spend eternity as believers. We will spend eternity in heaven. That is our hope. We have one hope that belongs to our call. One Lord 
There's only one Lord, one faith. It's through Jesus Christ. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And this is what we unify around. We just don't unify to hold hands and sing kumbaya. We unify, we walk in humility and gentleness and patience and love so that we can unify around truth so that we can be impactful into a, a, a world that desperately needs the gospel. Amen? That's what we unify around. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the truth of scripture. Why don't you stand your feet with me? So what I want to do is, as we close this message, I, ha- I ask the worship team to sing, to, to play this song for us. It's a song called, This I Believe. This I Believe. And it's, it's a creed. It's a creed of what we believe as Christians. And I want us to go out singing what we believe, declaring one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, unified together with humility and gentleness and patience and love, singing and declaring this. Amen? Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty, through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit.
there. Lord, we thank you that these are the truths that we build our life upon. That you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That you are the way to salvation, the only way to salvation. That we have a hope that we will rise again. We will be with you forever. God, I thank you for these realities. I thank you for unity in your church, unity in our lives. Lord, help us to be humble, to be gentle, to be patient, to walk in your agape love. Lord, bless your people today. Bless your people, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.